Here's how we diagnose the problem. We have identity amnesia, everybody. Tonight, Paul kind of furthers the conversation. And I want to mention this. Paul's talking now, specifically in the passage I'm about to read, to Christians. If you're not a Christian or you don't know where you are with God, you're still going to get a lot out of what Paul has to say. But keep in mind, it's not specifically directed to you. So the way that you should hear tonight is sit back, listen to this, ask yourself, is this true? Is this real? And do I need this? Do I need this identity? Do I need this freedom? And if you're a Christian tonight, know that you are the one with the crosshairs on your heart tonight. Paul is specifically aiming his words. God is specifically speaking uh, to you tonight. These are the things we're going to see. It's on your bulletin and here in the middle. Grace resurrects your identity, your intentions, your actions, and your individuality. This will make sense in a minute, but grace resurrects who you are, why you do what you do, what you do, and how you do it. And I chose that word resurrect very, very carefully, because resurrection is a word that means life being brought out of dead places. God's work in your life, the gospel of Jesus, resurrects, it pulls your identity out of the ash heap out of the landfill and it reconstructs it. It pulls your motivations out of a place of death and decay and it purifies them. It pulls your behavior, your lifestyle from a dungeon of captivity into freedom. It pulls your individuality into utter self-absorption and into a place where you're free to love other people and to love God. Why don't you stand up and read the passage and we'll get busy. This is the word of the Lord. This is in your bulletin. Colossians chapter 3, Paul says this. If then you, he's talking to Christians again here, if if you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above, where he is, seated at the right hand of God. Aim your mind, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you will will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality. By the way, this word sexual kind of is an umbrella word that applies to all of the other words after it. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, sexual impurity, sexual passion, sexual evil, evil sexual desires, sexual greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And in these these things, you too once walked when you used to live in them. But now you must put them away. Put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Because you've put off the old self with its practices. And you've put on the new self. A self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, in the, in the body of Christ, there isn't Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and is in all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we were praying earlier that there are things that we need to happen tonight in our hearts and in this group that we can't do, which is why we come to you. Not just because you're able to, but you're, you delight to do the very things we need you to do. Your word won't make sense to us unless you 
open our eyes. Your love will not penetrate our hearts unless you change our hearts and soften them. Our relationships and our lives will not change unless your Holy Spirit works that change into us. So that is what we pray from you tonight. Do these things in our midst now. We ask in your name. Amen. Take a seat for me. Thank you. So hopefully, if this is your first time at RUF, um, tonight is a little bit different. What I want to do is basically read through this passage with you again a little bit more slowly, explain a few things, and I want the second half of the message tonight to actually be a couple of case studies. Super practical, super real life applied. And so I've actually got um, this chart that I put in uh, your bulletin that uh, I'll get Clayton to pull up in a few minutes on the PowerPoint and we'll take a look at it and kind of put some real life scenarios uh, through this chart here. But let me bring you up to speed one more time. Two weeks ago we talked about what happens, what really happens when a person becomes a Christian. Well, what I mean is if you could slow down that moment when a person for the first time or when you for the first time realized your desperate need of Jesus, you finally owned up to who you are. No more hiding, no more excuses, no more rationalizing. But you looked in the mirror and you said, I am the cause. I am the reason I am this way. It's my fault. I was made for God, but I've left him. Every day of my life, I should have loved him and loved my neighbor, but I have loved myself with a ferocious passion. I have ignored him. I have suppressed him. If you have, if that moment has come to you, you've realized I need a savior, and you looked to the savior and said, "I need you. I need your grace. I need you to wash because I can't wash me." If that moment has happened for you, what happened when that happened? Typically, we think that, okay, God forgives you, right? And he does. But so much more happened in that instantaneous moment than just your sins being forgiven, being delivered from the punishment for sin. Imagine a Broadway stage. Those stages are huge. They're like 30 yards wide 40 yards wide, just enormous. You have to turn your head to see one in from the other. Imagine a stage like that. In the center of that stage, there's a spotlight. And it's a pretty small spotlight. And that spotlight is on uh, forgiveness. Imagine this stage is everything that God was doing when you looked to Jesus and believed that he was not only able to save you, but willing to save you. This stage has everything God was doing in that moment on your behalf. In the spotlight is forgiveness. Bible calls it a word called justification. Just as if God, he gives you the innocence you lack. You, you realize your lack of rightness and righteousness, he gives it to you. He makes you clean. He doesn't, it's not you, you become righteous, you clean up your life and then God accepts you. He makes you righteous. He makes you clean. He declares you innocent. You don't owe anything anymore. Past, present, future. Not like you're clean up till this very moment. And then it's on you tomorrow. For all of your past and all of your future, you are free. You are clean. You are good. You are innocent. It is just as if you never sinned. 
And just as if you perfectly obeyed everything God ever said. That's what's in the spotlight. Are you with me? The important piece. But what's going on just outside of the spotlight? What else happened in that moment? Beyond God saying you're clean, you're innocent, you're mine. Here's a few of many, many things. Another thing that was happening in that moment is God adopted you. Bible says he adopted you, which means my sister runs a baby home in Nairobi. All of her children have been abandoned. All of her children are orphans. And they have a term called a forever father or a forever family, right? And what that means is orphans or foster kids are, are passed around homes like ping pong ball, like a pinball machine. Bam, 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 bam. It's never your family. It's never your dad. It's never your mom. It's just temporary caretakers. The Bible says God adopts you. Signs the paperwork, you are his son, his daughter. Legally, you belong to him now. He takes responsibility for everything for you from that point forward. That also is on that stage of what happened in that moment. You became a Christian. God became your forever father. What else? The Spirit married you to Jesus. Some of you haven't heard this before. You might have been in churches that... Kind of got stuck on repeat and only talked about 1% of the Bible. But this also happened. The Spirit of Jesus married you to Jesus, meaning you are one with him now. Whatever is true about Jesus is true about you if you're a Christian. He will live forever, and so will you. He is the delight of his Father, and so are you. He is alive, never to die again. You will never die again. He is free from sin, victorious over it, and so are you. You can tell sin no now. He will win. He will get his way, and you will share in his victory. Everything that's true of the husband is true of the wife. The Spirit united you and made you one with Jesus. What else happened? God gave you a new past, a new present, a new future, which means the second you became a Christian, God ripped out all of the pages of your story up to that point, and he pasted in Jesus' story, which means this. Christian, listen to me. Hear this. In God's eyes, you died on a cross for your sins. You were punished. You were cursed. You were alienated. You were cast out. You were crushed. You were mocked. You were ridiculed. You were stripped naked. You were punished. And as proof that you were guilty, you were buried. The Bible says only guilty people die. Death is an invader. It's an alien invader in this world. It was never supposed to be here. Only guilty people die. Jesus died. How did he become guilty? He took your story. But he got up out of the grave. He was raised up out of this tomb to life forever. I just said only guilty people die. Only innocent people live forever. How did he raise up? God was saying, I'm satisfied with the punishment. The payment is made. I'm satisfied. You, Paul says, you, Christian, have been raised up to new life forever, which means God doesn't demand any payment from you. He is satisfied with your death on a cross. He is satisfied. You are vindicated. 
You know, when someone on the news, like someone's accused of a crime and everyone thinks they did it and they scorn them and ignore them and everything, and then it comes out years later, he didn't do it. You're like, yes, I'm vindicated. You have been vindicated before the world. That you are alive, that you matter, that you're the son or daughter of the living God. All of this is true about you now. A couple of other things. God poured out his Holy Spirit into your heart. The temple in the Old Testament is where God met with humanity. If you wanted to meet with God, you had to go to the temple. You can't say your little prayers in your bedroom like you can now because God's poured out His Spirit everywhere. You had to go to the temple in Jerusalem if you wanted to meet with God. The Bible says you're a temple. The Holy Spirit of Jesus has been poured into you. You are where God meets with humanity now. You are the vessel through which God shows himself to the world. This is true of you. This is happening on that stage. That moment you became a Christian. You have been released from captivity to sin. You are no longer a slave. Emancipation proclamation has been issued. You're free. He has taken out a heart of stone, a hard heart of stone, and put in you a heart of flesh. And in doing all of these things, if you could put a title, hang a banner on top of that stage and say, what's this play called? What's the theme or the topic that would summarize everything happening on that stage? And I only mentioned like 10% of what was going on. What would you call it? I would say identity transformation. God is changing who you are. He did it. I didn't say you changed who you are. God changed who you are. And I'm asking us, how can your life not change if all of this stuff on stage has changed about you? An entire stage full of action. That is what happened to you if you have looked to Jesus. That's what God is willing to do for you if you're dead in your sins and need life in him. Let's push pause there. Let that sink in for a second. This is the important part. About to shoot ahead. Picture in your mind. There's a spotlight with your forgiveness in there, and then all this other stuff that happens. Now, let me say something to those of you who were raised up in a church, Christian home, or you've been to a lot of ministries and stuff. You have probably heard the phrase identity of Christ a thousand times. You've probably had Sunday school classes on it, you've probably had youth group talks on it, you've probably heard messages on it about put your identity in Jesus. Take, don't put your identity in grades, it'll hurt you. Put your identity in Jesus. Be who you are. It's true and it's helpful. But are you like me? It is so flipping abstract. You're like, okay, what's next? Tell me how to do it. What do I do? And they're like, and let's pray. We're done. (laughs) Is it just me or does nobody ever says how to do that? Right? They just say, don't put your identity here. Put your identity in Jesus. Be rooted in him. And you're like, yes, 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 yes. And you leave hating yourself because you really want to do it, but you have no clue how to. So let's pray. We're done tonight. (laughs) So what does it mean to put your identity in Jesus, to root yourself in Jesus and in his story instead of you and your story? How do you do that? Here's how. It means... Opening your eyes to everything I just talked about on that stage and knowing that everything on this stage isn't just his story, it's my story. 
This play isn't just about Jesus, it's about me. That's what it means to root your identity in Jesus. And I was very explicit to describe many, many things, a stage full of action, because having your identity in Jesus isn't just something like, oh, uh, I'm a Christian now. Okay, it's not that simple. It's everything. Here's what I mean. Rooting your identity in Jesus means that now, because of what Jesus has done in your life, how he has freed you, and change your identity, now it means you are a neighbor. You are a friend. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Jesus has questioned all those people, is which one of these men, the Levite, the priest, or the Samaritan, which one was a neighbor to the man beat up and left for dead on the side of the road? That was the question. And he said to these people, you are a neighbor. If you're a Christian, you're a neighbor, you are a friend. What's the difference? If you came into RUF tonight, kind of old you, if you weren't aware of your new identity in Jesus, here's how you walked in. We always we do this several times throughout a semester or every time if you're not aware of it. You walk in a room and you say, who are my friends going to be? Which of these people are going to be my friends? And you either kind of hide quietly and you wait for people to come up to you, uh, or you hide behind your phone and wait for someone to come up to you, or you go find the person who you think is somewhere near you on the coolness factor, or you go find the person you know, whatever, like, talking about myself too. You walk into the room and you ask yourself the question, who can these people be for me? I'm saying part of your identity being Jesus means now you're a neighbor, you're a friend. You walk into the room and you say, who can I be a friend to? Who am I a neighbor to? Everybody. Let's start with the person closest to me. You love them. You learn their name. You know them because you're a neighbor now. You are a neighbor to the people around you. You are a helper. What's it mean to root your identity in Jesus? You are a helper. You're a burden lifter if you're a Christian. God has made you new. He's made you alive. Not just so you can kind of go back to your own little thing. He's given you a new purpose. You're a burden lifter. So anywhere you encounter burdens in your little tiny sphere around you, you lift them. So when someone gets to the restaurant, someone gets to Denny's tonight, and they're either out of money because it's October 31st just happened, they just paid their rent, and they're not eating, and you notice they're not eating, and you kind of don't want to embarrass them to ask them why, Lifting their burden says, hey, I don't care what you say, you're going to get a meal and I'm paying for it. Lifting a burden says to the waitress who's working minimum wage at Denny's, I'm going to lift her burden and give her more than 50 cents for her tip. Because she makes $3 an hour. Being a burden lifter means the guy next to me who I don't even know in my chemistry class, I hear him groaning during the lecture. I know he didn't get this material. I kind of do get it. So I'm going to say, let's go get lunch and I'll help you. You are a burden lifter, so you lift the burdens. You are a helper, so you help when opportunities present themselves. You are an encourager. This is what's true about you. This is who you are now if you're a Christian. So when you meet discouraged people, either because they've forgotten who they are, you encourage them. You remind them who they are. Hey, you remember that talk about the stage? Oh, let me tell you about who you are. All of it's true about you right now. Or if they've gotten some tunnel vision with school or whatever else, they've lost perspective. You're the friend who reminds them of perspective. Why? You are an encourager now. You are a truth teller. You are a prophet. So when you encounter deception or truth twisting or spin or lies or gossip or slander, you don't participate in it. You correct the record. You care about truth. 
You don't, you don't perpetuate lies. You don't lie to the world. You don't do it in a self-righteous, arrogant way like, oh, well, I will tell you the truth about this because she's gossiping. You do it in a gentle, loving, gracious way, but you are a truth-teller now. How can you perpetuate lies? How can we participate in the gossip chain? You are a truth-teller. You are a worker. You've heard several messages this fall from Ross Dixon at Paul Conference from from uh, Jeff a few weeks ago, like, you're a worker. God made you to work, to work hard, to love your work. Are you the, bo- are you the person your boss goes home talking to his wife at the dinner table saying, man, if I had 15 more Austins, my life would be awesome. If everyone were like him, this company would be through the roof. Or are you the person the boss goes home to complaining to his wife all the time? Showed up late again, didn't call in. Stole time on the timesheet. They weren't there that that time, but they put they were. Who are you? These are identity questions. You're a son or a daughter of the living God. You're a servant. You walk into places and you say, what can I do to serve? Not what can these people or what can this ministry or this church do to serve me? You're not a consumer. You are not a consumer. That's an identity statement. You are a servant. You're a giver. You're a generous giver. Because a generous God has turned your life around. Why is this important? Why is it important to remember that I'm a helper, that I'm a neighbor, that I'm an encourager, that I'm a servant, that I'm a truth teller, that I'm a prophet, that I'm a priest, that I'm a healer? Why must you remember this? Because our motivations and our actions flow out of our identity. That's abstract. Let me bring it down to earth. What I do and why I do it flows directly out of who I think I am. Who you think you are at any given moment is what absolutely determines your motivations or lack thereof, and it determines your actions, whether they are godly and helpful or sinful and hurtful. Michaela is a freshman who's been around the REF this fall. She's, she's here tonight, but um, she... Uh, made the foolish decision during uh, Welcome Week to raise your hand when the hypnotist said, uh, who of you want to come on stage? I'll hypnotize you. It'll be awesome. So she raises her hand. She's one of like maybe 10 or 15 people up on stage. And this guy hypnotizes her. He puts her like in a trance or something and the other people on stage. All he does to Michaela after that, she'll tell you the story next time she's here. All he does after that is says, I think he said you're a ballerina said, okay, Michaela, you're a ballerina now. He didn't tell her what to do. He didn't tell her how to act. All he did is say, this is who you are. She knew the rest. Tell someone who they are and they know what to do because our actions and our motivations flow directly out of our identity. Who you think you are shapes what you do. A few years ago, I met a, I met a guy who was a, a Staunch evolutionists, like naturalistic, materialistic evolution. There is nothing out there except this, this uh, survival of the fittest thing out there. And, uh, it, it, made, it, it was not shocking to me or him at all when you heard about his sex life. Because to him, he's an animal and so are all the girls he sleeps with. He doesn't care about them the day after. They're just animals. He has a primal urge and he wants to satisfy it. And they're animals too, so they want to satisfy it too. This guy believed he was just an animal... He acted like an animal. Who you think you are directly shapes what you do and why you do it. 
you're a Marine, first day on boot camp, they don't necessarily tell you what to do. They yell at you repeatedly. You're a Marine. You're a Marine. You start falling behind the group while they're running. You're a Marine. You know what to do. Run faster. You fall down when you're going through the barbed wire in the mud. You're a Marine. You get up. You keep going. They tell you who you are, and you know what to do. Marriage. Morgan and Valeria got married two weeks ago. Many of you were at that wedding. There was a point at the end of the service where I said, I pronounce you husband and wife. Morgan and Blair watched, walked down that aisle, bachelor, bachelorette, had no obligation to each other. They walked back down the aisle, husband and wife, with a world of obligation and responsibilities and freedoms with each other. What happens if Morgan forgets his new identity as a husband? What happens if Valeria even momentarily forgets, I'm a wife? I'm a wife to Morgan. What happens? Morgan goes out with the guys. He grabs a beer on a Friday night. He never calls her, tells her where he is. He sleeps in. They don't make plans together on a Saturday. He makes plans for the future. He doesn't include her in it. She starts, like, her whole life becomes about her. She forgets about him. The marriage breaks apart if they forget their identity. It's even more on the line with parenting. John Robert, a couple months ago, went from the world of bachelor, and then he was a married man for a year, and now he's a father, Annie Louisa. And sometime in early August, his identity changed overnight. And Annie Louisa will either thrive or be neglected and wither, depending on whether her father remembers his identity. What happens if he forgets he's a father? He sleeps in. He neglects time with his daughter. He never asks her how life's going. He doesn't come to her recitals. He's AWOL. This is getting very real now for many of you because now it's not abstract. This is real life. Some of you bear the burden of a dad or a mom who forgot who they were, and you know that identity directly shapes how they treated me. They were childless. They were single. They were AWOL. And I suffered every day because of it. Friends, please hear me. This isn't abstract. This is life and death. This is absolutely practical. Who you think you are is the reason you did what you did today. It's the reason you felt the way you felt. It's the reason you made the decisions you made. So, let's get back to the passage, take a quick look at this chart, and call it a night. Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is. And I said this even when I read the passage. What he's saying there, the word means aim your thoughts on Jesus. Aim your thoughts on the stage. That's when he says heavenly things. He's not talking about fat babies on clouds playing the harp. And he's saying, you're in a Broadway. Look at the stage. Look at what's happening. Why are you looking at your phone? Set your thoughts, aim your mind on the stage where Christ is, what he has done for you, what he is doing in you. Wake up, remember who you are. You're a helper, a neighbor, a servant, a friend, a generous giver. This aiming your mind on these things, watching the action on the stage, that is what pours cold water on the fire of temptation. We're going to talk about this next week a lot. I don't want to make this sound too simple. 
Fighting sin is hard. Fighting temptation is excruciating. But I do want you to hear this simply. What, what pours cold water on the fire, the flame of temptation? It's knowing who you are. It's being crystal clear in that moment who I am and who I'm not. This is what he says in verse 5. Put to death what is earthly in you. That is, this is what you do to kill sin. Verse 2 is where he shows you how to kill sin. Set your minds on things above, for you have died and been raised up. So when he's talking, all this talk about put to death, put away, put these things away, how do you do that? In that moment of temptation, when you're hearing the lies, you're just an animal. Give in to the urge. You have a biological need to release this. That's when you stand up and you start being a prosecutor. And you say, liar, no I'm not. Because your eyes are watching the stage and you know who you are. Some people think Christianity means you turn your brain off and you just believe. It's not at all that way. It's the exact opposite. N.T. Wright, a famous theologian, says, contrary to what a lot of people think today, being a Christian requires learning to think harder, not less. You cannot leave your brain behind in the quest for new spiritual experiences. C.S. Lewis talked about the mind, and he said this in the screw tape letters. These demons, these fictional demons are talking to each other. They say, hey, it's funny how mortals always picture us demons putting thoughts in their mind. In reality, our best work is done by keeping thoughts out of their mind. He's saying the devil's best work in your life, his most effective strategy is to keep you distracted from the stage. Oh, look at this YouTube video. <laughs> oh, look at this other stuff going on. Man, life's really busy right now. The stage of redemption is happening before your eyes. The drama is happening before your eyes. And C.S. Lewis is saying the devil's best work is done by keeping the thoughts of who you are in Christ as far away from you as possible. Paul says, keep these things in your mind because when they are kept out or when you forget them, you will start living out of some other identity. You will chase another Jesus shadow. Something, some earthy created thing that is good, but is not a Messiah, isn't a rescuer, isn't a redeemer, isn't a savior. Getting to the perfect appearance, the perfect weight, the perfect GPA, the perfect scholarship situation can't salvage the wreckage of and end your life. Clayton, do you mind putting that um, thing up? And uh, we'll look at this next week and uh, this week and next week. Let's do about two or three minutes on this. And we'll come back to it next week. I want to talk about maybe three examples. Exercise, grades, speech. Exercise, grades, in our mouths or talk. Some of where we've been, grace resurrects your identity, it resurrects your intentions and your actions. This is how it all fits together. I shouldn't turn around. Okay. <laughs> I will look at this. Your identity, that's where we start. That's who you think you are. Paul says you have died and have been raised with Christ. Your life is now hidden with him. That leads to why you do what you do directly flows out of that. I'm new. That's your new motivating, animating thought in the new life as a Christian. I'm new. I'm going places. I'm not old. I'm not dead. I'm not in the morgue. I'm out walking around now. 
which shapes your actions in those moments. Put away, he says in the passage, sexual immorality, impurity, evil. Put on, he says in the passage we'll look at next week, humility, patience, forgiveness. This leads to feelings. This leads to emotional response, which reinforces your identity. You know when people do philanthropic stuff, they said it just makes me feel good. They do more philanthropic charity stuff. When you love a roommate who's hard to love, when you do the work of love, it makes you feel love for them. When you act, feelings come. You can't start with feelings. If you follow your emotions into your identity, you'll never get anywhere. And this is what we often do. So let's talk about exercise real quick. If you forget your identity, if you're living in the old you, the dead you who's in the morgue, the old you who has forgotten the stage of everything God has done and is doing in you, if you forget that, how will you exercise? What will your intentions be, your motivations? What will your actions be? What will your feelings be? Your motivation for exercise will be all about you. It'll be about, we've talked about this in the past couple of weeks, the way your stomach looks, the way your thighs look, the way your pecs look. I want people to notice me. I want attention. I want to feel better about myself when I'm walking down I'm all in front of everybody else. Or spring break is coming and I want to look good for that. And like we said in the past weeks, Paul says, if that is what your identity is in, the way you look, you will feel on top of the world and superior to everybody else when it's going well for you. You'll look down your nose at everybody else. Why can't they pull it together and be in shape? And when you fail, when the scale returns a number higher than what you wanted, when you look in the mirror and it's not what you wanted to see, it will crush you. It will embarrass you. God calls you to put this off. Take it off. It is ugly. It is dead. It leads nowhere. It's a shadow. There's no substance there. You'll never be able to grab hold of anything. What you want isn't there. Kill it. Argue with those thoughts when they come. And he said... What could the same working out or exercising look like out of this new identity? It could look like a couple of things. I have met more and more old people who say the reason they walk, the reason they exercise, the reason they work out is so they can hold their grandchild. What a beautiful motivation to exercise. I don't want my back to go out so I can hold my grandchild and give my kids a break. What a beautiful motivation if the reason you work out is that you have muscles to deploy at the ready whenever anybody needs your help moving. When that old lady in your church is moving to an assisted living place and she needs people to help her move, and you're able to help, and you're able to do it well because you're strong. What if you work out because you know God delights in your body? And he delights in his creatures bringing their bodies, a gift he gave you to peak performance. Eric Liddell, the famous runner, said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. What if when you exercise, I feel God's delight because the body he gave me, I am bringing it to max performance. Not for attention, not for acclaim, not to look better than other people, but to make him pleased. Grades. The old you, when you forget who you are and grades become the Jesus shadow you're chasing, I'll give you rest if you get the 4L, if you get the internship, if you get the scholarship, all will be well. You'll live forever. You'll be at peace. And you chase and you chase and you chase. What's your intention? Your intention, your motivation is the thrill, that thrill, that electric thrill of seeing the class average posted in your grades higher. 
or the professor name drops you. If you need help on this assignment, go talk to the Ben or go talk to Anna or Clayton or whoever, because they really know what they're doing. Inside, you're like, you're like walking on air. It's a short-lived, um, well, when your grades are good, you feel superior, better than other people, boastful, proud. When they come back bad, you yourself are crushed. You didn't just get a bad grade. You are embarrassed. You are ashamed. You are undone. What is a godly way to pursue good grades? Can look like the very same actions. You don't do the bare minimum, but you study hard because you know one day my job is going to serve a whole ton of people. If I'm an accountant, they need help on their taxes. If I'm a lawyer, they need help getting out of a bind. If I'm a teacher, these kids need my best to succeed in their lives. If I'm a doctor, I'd better know every sickness out there and every medicine that can help or else my people aren't going to get better. Or you just believe God's world is so beautiful and so brilliant it demands and earns my attention. He has, did you see the sunset tonight? He has made such a brilliant world. It is worthy of my attention. And so I study. I learn about it. I master it. Friends, these are the ways that you can be, pursue the very same things that kill some people because they make it their identity. The Christian can pursue it, and it redeems those things. It makes them safe for you. If you remember who you are, when you forget who you are, those things will kill you. And like I said earlier about the dad who forgets who he, are, who he is, the mom who forgets who she is, the parent, or the, the, the husband or the wife who forgets who they are. Other people suffer, you suffer, and the world suffers. Next week, we'll pick the conversation back up. Paul brings all these thoughts full circle, and we'll put a few more things through this of our identity and how it affects our motivations, our actions, and our feelings. Let's pray as we end. Thanks for bearing with me tonight and a little bit more on our plate than usual. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you that in Jesus you offer and you have for many people completely transformed who we are. We are helpers. We are neighbors. We are servants. We are givers. We are lovers. We are prophets. We are truth tellers. I pray that in specific situations this week, when we hear these other voices come and say, protect your reputation, pass along the gossip, be the cool person, I pray that in that moment you would free us to remember who we are, and that we would act out of that identity. Help us, we pray, Lord Jesus Christ.